Please open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, where if God will bless us another Sunday morning, we'll continue further in our study of the book of Hebrews. You have a heading in your Bibles most likely that reads the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Hebrews. We believe those words. We believe that Paul the Apostle did write the book of Hebrews and we believe the book was written to a group of people that specifically and directly receive the warnings, the exhortation, the promises of this book, and that is Christian Jews, believing Hebrews, spiritual Israelites who have been duly elected before the foundation of the world, justified by Christ 30 years previously, regenerated by the Spirit of God and converted by the ministry of Paul, Peter, James, John, and the other ministers of Christ. But they stand in danger, for under the persecution they're suffering from their brethren, being cast out of the synagogue, out of the temple, forbidden to worship any longer in the Jews' religion, they are tempted to go back under the Old Testament law to forsake Christ, give up the gospel, forsake their baptisms, and go back under Moses, go back to Judaism as it was practiced in 60 A.D. The first chapter compares Jesus Christ and the gospel to the prophets and the angels, and he's far superior. Jesus Christ is the creator of the angels. Jesus Christ is the object of worship of the angels. Jesus Christ is truly God. Chapter 2, Jesus Christ in his humiliation as a man is presented as being superior to the angels for his reward for humbling himself to death, even the death of the crucifixion, was that he was exalted far above all principalities and powers, as we can read in several places in Scripture. And those principalities and powers include the powers, the authority, the thrones, the dominions that God's angels have. Jesus Christ is far above them in His exalted state after His incarnation and humiliation on the cross. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the great event of the gospel. We don't deny the importance of the crucifixion. But without the resurrection, the crucifixion is of no value. It is the resurrection where God owned Jesus Christ as the only begotten Son of God, and He was declared to be that with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, according to Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. It was the resurrection that the apostles preached. Any man can die. It's only the Son of Man that could raise himself from the dead. It was the resurrection that took the miracles to prove. It takes no miracle to prove that men die. It took miracles to prove the resurrection of Christ. And once exalted, he's at the right hand of God as an intercessor for us as chapter 2 ends. In chapters 3 and 4, the apostle sets forth before these Christian Israelites, these believing Israelites, that they stood in danger of having God swear against them just as God swore against their fathers in the wilderness. When presented with the land of Canaan, 
They refused to take the promise of God, and so God swore against them, and they all died in the wilderness. And the apostle brings to bear in these two chapters a severe warning that let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. If these Hebrews here in 60 A.D. did not labor diligently to endure the affliction, endure the persecution, keep in memory what they had been taught, they would lose God's rest waiting for them in the gospel, just as their fathers had lost the land of Canaan by not taking it. And that was the warning of chapter 3 and 4. However, chapter 4 ends with the great priesthood of Jesus Christ when we read in verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Now that's the theme of Hebrews. Let us hold fast our profession. But the main reason we ought to hold fast our profession is what's found in the first part of that verse, that in Jesus we have a great high priest. Then in chapter 5, down through verse 10, the apostle deals with some of the characteristics of Christ's priesthood and how that Christ fulfilled the qualifications of Aaron to be the high priest of Israel. He was called of God. He was able to relate to God and men. Two important characteristics. And when he interceded on behalf of himself, his prayers were heard. We studied that in chapter 5, verse 7. And he ends in verse 10, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he was called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. At that point, we have an interruption. He leaves the comparison of Jesus to Moses, Jesus to prophets, Jesus to angels, Jesus to Melchizedek, Jesus to Aaron. He leaves that. He leaves a comparison of the gospel to the law. He leaves a comparison of the New Testament to the Old Testament. And he interrupts to rebuke, to warn, and to exhort to growth, patience, and progress, and endurance in the gospel. And it's in chapter 7 where he'll come right back to what we left off in verse 10 of chapter 5, and that is Jesus called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, the rebuke is given. You people ought to be teachers, but you have a need that I come back again and preach the elementary facts of our faith, that Jesus is God, that Jesus is a great high priest, that Jesus is better than the old covenant. Uh, brethren, these Hebrews had been celebrating the Lord's Supper. They had partaken of wine, administered under the words, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. And now they were thinking of going back to the Old Testament. Pitiful. Pitiful. And the apostle rebukes them in verses 11, 14, 11 through 14 of chapter 5 for being so ignorant of the elementary facts of the faith. He says, I have so many things I'd like to say to you, but you're not ready to hear them. You're dull of hearing. I don't even know how to put them into words because you're so dull of hearing. You're so immature. 
You're so dumb when it comes to the things of Scripture. But in chapter 6, after he rebukes them, he says, let's go on anyway. Let's go on and leave the first principles of the doctrine of Christ. And he mentions a number of them. The laying on of hands, repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptism, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And he says, we're going to go on if God permit. But before he goes on, he has a warning. And the warning is what we covered last Sunday extensively, and that is found in verses 4 through 8. The warning is this. If the preaching you've already received, if the profession you've already received has not been sufficient to keep you following Christ, then it's too bad. If you forsake what you've heard, if you forsake these first principles of Christ, if you go back under the law and ignore what you've learned about Jesus Christ, your situation is irremediable. There is no remedy, as the Bible describes. Look over in Second Chronicles chapter 36. May I give you one more text? Second Chronicles chapter 36. It's amazing now when I turn in my written Bible to a passage of Scripture, it does not look familiar. Do you know why? I've been staring at my EGA monitor that has Godspeed flipping the verses up in front of me. You watch yourselves. You're going to lose familiarity with your Bible. This book now stays closed. I, I do study. But the book itself stays closed because it is so much easier to flip those verses up on that computer. And now I'm looking at Second Chronicles 36 and the verse I want, and I'm just letting you know what's running through my mind while I'm speaking to you. I, gotta, I have to look for it because I don't, I'm not sure where it's located on this page. But we want to begin reading at verse 14. What Second Chronicles is, is the last statement of the Old Testament. This is the last history written of the Old Testament. If you would ever look at a Hebrew Bible, you would find the last book of that Bible being 2 Chronicles and the last chapter of that Bible being chapter 36. This is the end of the history given to us in the Old Testament. There's 500 years where we're not told anything. And that is from the captivity in Babylon to the coming of Christ. This is God closing His dealings with the Jews for 70 years. Very comparable to what He did to the Jews in 70 A.D. However, there it was permanent. Look at verse 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. This ends the history of the Jewish nation other than their recovery later where we're not given very many details. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets, 
until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people, till there was no remedy. Therefore, He brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young man or maiden, old man or him that stooped for age, he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God and brake down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. When under Cyrus, God did restore his people back to Jerusalem. Now, does that summarize what happened in 70 A.D.? God sent his messengers, his prophets. They used, they misused them, let's say. They despised their words. They slew them till the wrath came from God and there was no remedy. Therefore, God burned up their temple. That's, yes, Solomon's temple where God had been worshipped. He broke down the walls of the city of Jerusalem and left the place desolate. And he did that in 70 A.D. also, 600 years after he did it right here in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. The point, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. If you have been enlightened with the gospel, if you have tasted of the heavenly gift, if you have been a partaker of the Holy Ghost, if you have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, as Paul describes the state of these elect, justified, regenerate, converted brethren, if you've done all that and you leave it and forsake it, you fall away and go back under Judaism, it is impossible to renew you to repentance because the wrath of God was come upon that generation and there was no remedy for a few of you who weren't here last Sunday. There was no remedy. The point is this. Notice that those verses begin with the word for. For connects verses 4 through 8 with verses 1 through 3. Why repeat the doctrine of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God when if they leave that, there is no recovery? <laughs> why repeat it? That's why he's going on. For you, brethren, that it's had an effect to provoke in you endurance and you're going to make it, you don't need it. You're ready for strong meat. For you, brethren, who are going to go back to Judaism, you don't need to hear it again either because it's too late if you go back. It is impossible to renew, if, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that these saved brethren were now crucifying Christ over again as far as they were concerned. What a heinous crime. And what did Jesus say over and over would happen to his murderers? He would grind them the powder and burn up their city. And he did so, just as he did under Nebuchadnezzar in 500 B.C. Now let's look at 
verse 9 of chapter 6. What a warning. If you fall away, it's too late. If you fall away, you are like ground, in verse 8, which beareth thorns and briars. And what is the three-step process of God? He'll reject you, He will curse you, and then He will burn you. And that, brethren, is not burning in hell. That is burning in the city destruction of Jerusalem, which would follow a curse. And the curse would be, they shall not enter into my rest. It is the impossibility of recovery. Just like what happened to Israel in the wilderness. God swore, and then He destroyed. He rejected, He swore against them, and then He destroyed them. I hope you brethren all see that. that it is so plain, the three-step process. But it's so sweet this morning to see the curse. What's a curse? It's swearing. It's swearing, brethren. We're going to see a sweet contrast. The Bible is filled with contrasts that are very sweet if you'll look for them. In verse 8, we have a curse. We have swearing by God. They shall not enter in to my rest, but I will destroy them, and he will do it. We're going to see another curse, though. We're going to see another swearing, another oath in verses 9 through 20. With that warning of rejection, cursing, and burning on any who might fall away from the gospel, Paul then puts some salve on the wounds. Can you imagine how these Hebrews must feel by the time Paul gets to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 8? They're scared. They're worried. They know that Paul is an apostle. They know that Paul has had definitely the ability to discern spirits. <laughs> Brethren, just think about if Paul said to you that you were ignorant and that there's no reason to go ahead and preach to you the first principles anymore because if you're going to go ahead and fall away, there's no hope left for you. You're beyond recovery. He's got them pretty low. They're pretty serious right now about their situation. And then he comes back with these words. But... Oh, and aren't there some sweet things in the Bible that start off with that little three-letter word, but? But. Can I show you a couple? Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I don't usually preach word for word on prepositions and conjunctions, but once in a while, it's nice to see the buts of Scripture. Ephesians chapter 2. I don't even want to read it because I don't want to take the time. I don't want to read the whole passage. You know what the first three verses say. They describe us in our situation by nature. We are by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We do the will of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. What a terrible condition we are in. Verse 4, But God. But. You like buts? They're adversarial conjunctions. That means they are connecting two thoughts in an adversarial type relationship, an exception is being provided. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love wherewith He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. No matter how bad the situation was described in verses 1 through 3, 
Thank God for adversarial conjunctions. But God. There, are, there is an exception made to that terrible condition of verses 1 through 3. Look back a couple pages to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, Paul speaking about himself personally. In verse 13, For ye have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Here Paul is describing his reputation. This is his resume, brethren. He was a church persecutor of the first degree. He wasted the church of God. He was more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of the fathers than the greatest of the Pharisees. Why, he even persecuted them to strange cities, the Bible tells us. If there was one man that could be picked as an antichrist in the days of the apostles, it was Paul. There was no purer antichrist than Paul. Jesus was an imposter, and anyone who even used his name ought to be stoned to death or caused to blaspheme that name of Jesus of Nazareth. Why, he told King Agrippa, I verily thought within myself I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. What a resume. Brethren, but look at verse 15. But, but, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen. When it pleased God, I ended up being a preacher of Jesus of Nazareth. I like the buts of Scripture. Read every word in your King James Bible. You know, we memorize the number of chapters, 1,189. We memorize the number of verses, 31,173. We memorize the number of words. We need to read the Scriptures by their words. Even the buts are important. Back to Hebrews 6 and verse 9. I don't usually preach on but. But sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's valuable. God makes differences. And here Paul, with a severe warning, now makes a difference. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He says, though I've just beat you into great fear over your profession, though I've just made you feel very insecure relative to your future, though I've just warned you severely, though I've been speaking that way, I am persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. Now, the things there could either be the things that result from practical salvation or they are the things that prove practical salvation. For instance, looking at verse 8, there are things that prove that you're not saved practically. That's thorns and briars. Then there are things that are the result of a lack of practical salvation. That's rejection, cursing, and burning. But verse 10 will tell us what the word things is representing. It's representing their works, the evidence of their practical salvation. What's under consideration is practical salvation. 
Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany practical salvation, though we thus speak. Though I've been speaking as if you may lose your practical salvation and be destroyed, we are persuaded that there are things in your lives that show us you will be and are practically saved. You say, God didn't put that word in there. That word practical isn't in verse 9. Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We better divide some way. Brethren, if you want to make things accompanying final salvation, you ought to go to the Church of Rome this morning or the Calvinists. If you're going to make good works accompany final salvation here as evidence that would persuade a man. They accompany practical salvation and persuade Paul that these people were in a different lot than those he was warning against. For the most part, he was persuaded of their faithfulness. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. There can be persuasion relative to salvation. That most of those who claim to be unconditionalists, we are unconditionalists. We believe that eternal life and the hope of eternal glory in heaven is unconditionally given by the grace of God. Most of them would be afraid to say, I'm persuaded that I have eternal life. I'm sure I have eternal life. Most of them want to talk about their hope. And when they use the word hope, they do not mean it in the Bible way. In the Bible, hope is to patiently wait for it. Romans chapter 8 and verse 25. Why don't we look at that just for you to see it in print. I don't like to hear people who are so unsure of their Savior, so unsure of their own good works, so unsure of themselves, that all they can do is hypothetically, probability, in a, in a way of probability, hope for salvation. Here's hope. Romans 8 and verse 25. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, does that sound like somebody who thinks there's a 55% chance today I'm one of God's elect? There's a 25% chance tomorrow. There's a 95% chance on Sundays. This is patiently waiting for something that is sure. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? I mean, Romans chapter 8 is filled with security and things that ought to persuade us. And what are the things? <laughs> but foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Not even we ourselves, as the rest of that chapter proves. Back to Hebrews chapter 6. Paul was persuaded. We can be persuaded. I can be persuaded of, your, of you and your faith and the things that accompany salvation. You can be persuaded one of another, and you can be persuaded of yourselves. If you say to me this morning, well, I'm not very sure, then I'd have to ask you, why are you lacking in works, brethren? Why are you lacking in works? Persuasion comes through works. 
Because here is the explanation of Paul's persuasion. Paul's persuasion is stated in verse 9. The example of it is in verse 10. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward His name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. What a beautiful verse. This verse speaks what I have tried to emphasize in this congregation on with an increasing degree of emphasis over the last four years. And that is, the greatest of these is charity. And yet show I unto you a more excellent way. The greatest example of salvation that a person can ever bring is not faith. The devils believe and tremble. It is not to believe on Jesus Christ. The devils believe on Jesus Christ. They believe He is the Holy One of God. They made a profession of that with their mouth and believed it in their heart every time they saw Jesus Christ. How many times have you heard Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That's a starting place for evidence. But the devils do that. Every time Jesus came around them, they confessed with their mouth and believed in their heart that God hath raised him from the dead. They knew that. Why do you think over there in Acts, when seven sons of Sceva tried to cast demons out of a man, they said, Jesus, we know. They knew Jesus. They knew He was the Son of God. They confessed with their mouth and they believed in their heart. They believed it so sincerely in their heart it caused them to tremble about the future judgment that was coming. They knew that Christ was going to be victorious and destroy them in the lake of fire. That's why they said, Art thou come to torment us before our time? I'd like to lay that on a few congregations this morning. You know, they'll call men forward this morning to meet at the altar and to confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ has saved them and to believe in their heart that God hath raised Him from the dead and they've done nothing more than a devil so far. But it is the starting point. That is the starting point, especially for a Jew over there in Romans chapter 10. Remember, the Jew, Paul said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for bear them record they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of Christ's righteousness, are going about to establish their own righteousness. But salvation from trying to establish your own righteousness is believing on Jesus Christ. Because verse 5 goes on to say, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, because He fulfilled it. And when you have Gentiles stating that, they're doing nothing more than a devil would do. The great evidence is found right here in Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 10. The work and the labor of love. By nature, I can't go preach to you love is the greatest again. Do you remember those four sermons from nine, nine months ago already? Love is the greatest. It's the greatest grace. It's the greatest evidence. It's the greatest work. It's the greatest means. It's the greatest concept. The Bible sets forth love as the greatest. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 tells us, Now abideth these three, faith, hope, charity, these three. And the greatest of these is charity. 
Charity or love is greater than faith. Charity or love is greater than hope. Charity is that motivating influence that causes us to work and labor for others. You've never seen a devil love. You've never seen a reprobate love. Because love is born of God, for God is love. And he that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God, and God dwelleth in him, because God is love. And the unregenerate man has no love. Look at Titus chapter 3, just back a few pages. Titus precedes Hebrews, except for the little book of Philemon. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Is Titus a general epistle or a pastoral epistle? What does pastoral epistle mean? Written to a pastor. Titus chapter 3 and verse 3. Paul, one minister, to Titus, another minister. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Your heart by nature is a great container of envy, malice, wickedness, and great hatred toward everyone and everything. God included, brothers included, family included, and we're not talking about the natural affection that beasts have. Yes, parents have that kind of affection. But when love will execute itself toward another human being by keeping God's commandments toward that human being, we are talking about a kind of love that no natural mother has ever had for her child until she's regenerated by the Spirit of God. Listen, not crying when your child falls off their bicycle and skins their knees is not love. That's a feeling. Love as it's defined in the Word of God is beyond that. It involves feelings, but it is something spiritual for it is godly. It is something from God and it works. Hatred is of the devil. Turn the other way in your Bibles, the book that follows Hebrews, and that's James chapter 3. James chapter 3, people that do not love are either demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. James chapter 3, verse 13, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, Glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion, and every evil work, and a manifestation of the possession or oppression of the devil is confusion. That's why pigs jump off cliffs when they have demons in them. That's why little boys foam at the mouth, throw themselves in the fire. That's why men live among tombs and, want, and don't want to put clothes on. <coughs> this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. But notice the warning in the previous verse. Glory not, and lie not against the truth. When we're angry, when we're bitter towards someone, when we hate someone, we can always justify it, can't we? 
It's their fault. It's their fault. Well, they did this to me. Well, they're this kind of a person. You're a devil. You're acting devilish. That is not from above. Be not deceived. Glory not. Don't lie against the truth. That feeling, those sentiments, and the action that results from those sentiments is from the pit of hell. It's from the devil himself. Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. John chapter 8 and verse 44. And how do you commit murder according to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 5? Hating your brother in your heart, being angry with your brother, calling him names. You are guilty of murder. He is a murderer from the beginning, and it's his lusts ye will do. Hatred is devilish, but it is what we have by nature. By nature, we all hate one another. Now, do you believe that or not? Some people, because they get warm feelings from time to time, think they love everyone. All they do is love how they can use one another. And that gives them a warm feeling. By nature, we hate one another. And that wisdom comes from below. It comes from the devil. This is why love, I'm just giving you some background as to why love is the greatest work and evidence of a child of God, for it is the most difficult thing you will ever do in your life, is to love. When the Bible says it's the greatest, it's not only the greatest virtue, it's the greatest evidence, brethren, because it's the greatest work. It takes more effort than anything else you will do because it more directly involves others than any other virtue. It requires objects. If you've tried to love scripturally, you know what I'm talking about this morning. If you've memorized 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, you know what I'm talking about. Let's look at those verses and just, just let them hit our minds once again. I have defined these 15 terms to you before. We don't have time to do it again this morning, although I would so like to. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. This is a real man. This is a real woman. This is true Christianity. This is evidence that can persuade a person of salvation. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Ask yourselves, do I practice this toward my wife, my husband? Do I practice this toward my children, my parents? Do I practice this toward all the brethren and my sisters? Charity suffereth long. Do you suffer? Do you endure pain and things that bother you for a long time? Or are you known to have a short fuse? And if something bothers you, the bomb goes off because it had a two-inch fuse. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity shows initiative in doing acts of kindness toward others. Charity thanks of others and does things for them without reminders or help. Charity envieth not. Charity is not jealous because of someone else's status in life. Charity is not trying to emulate others to an ungodly degree. They're happy for others when others are better than themselves because they esteem the things of others more important than their own things. Am I defining these? Charity vaunteth not itself. 
Charity is not trying to set itself up. Charity doesn't talk more than anyone else in a group of people. Charity listens. It's not trying to set itself forward as the object of the attention of the group. Charity is not talking about its things. Charity is talking about the things of others. Charity is not puffed up. Charity does not have pride. Charity does not look down upon others. Charity condescends to men of low estate, as Romans chapter 12 would tell us. Verse 5, Love doth not behave itself unseemly. It knows prudence and discretion to reserve and refrain its temperamental tendencies when around others. It does not behave itself naturally. We all have natural tendencies that offend others. Charity doth not behave itself naturally. Charity refrains itself. It doth not behave itself in an unseemly way. Charity seeketh not her own. It is not most interested in what it can find for itself. A person that truly loves will be seeking what it can do for others at its own expense many times. Charity is not easily provoked. I wonder why he keeps coming back to this theme. <laughs> when someone does something against you, when they offend you, they say something that isn't the best. They have habits that you don't like. They avoid you one day. They don't greet you with all the enthusiasm that you think your great position of honor and respect deserve. So you're provoked. Are you easily provoked? Do you have a short fuse? Charity is not easily provoked. Charity thinketh no evil. No matter what the actions of others might be, they put the very best construction upon the actions of others. Though they may have doubts in their mind about what others have done, they do not surmise evil intentions. Instead of sitting around and thinking of evil thoughts about someone else on what they intend to do to you because of their actions, charity thinketh no evil. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity. Charity never has any pleasure in iniquity in another person. Oh, how many times have a, has a young man said to a young woman, Oh, honey, I love you. I love you so much. And all it has been has been a key to unlock that woman's virtue. How many times has that been done? Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity. You young people, especially you young ladies, don't ever let some young man tell you that he loves you. His words are irrelevant. Let him show you that he loves you. And if he wants to do anything evil with you, that's proof that he does not love you. Right. You say, but I feel like I love him, and I feel like I want to do it. Well, your feelings aren't love. Your feelings are the base animal appetites of the flesh God gave you. Now, in marriage, God bless those base animal appetites that He gave us. But outside of marriage, they're wrong. But how many times they're base and they're animalistic now because of the fall? I'll define myself, brethren. They're good, godly, and glorious when they're used in marriage. But how many times has that word love been used to break down the resistance of a woman? Because she is so much in need of verbal reassurance and affection. Now, I could preach on that for a while. You parent, you fathers, you have a duty. 
And that is to convince your young ladies in particular that the words I love you are irrelevant. Let him prove his love. Irrelevant. You, you don't even need a boyfriend to tell you that he loves you. Let him prove his love for you. Who cares that he it write, wrote you a note in the sixth hour in social studies and pass it across the room, and it says, I love you, and it's got a smiley face at the bottom, and a little flower. Big deal. Let him prove his love. Even if he says it like the Fonz, let him prove it. We smile, and we laugh, and we know how many women have lost their purity because of not understanding the word L-O-V-E and being emotionally and psychologically raped. That is what it is. You say, well, doesn't the young lady have some responsibility? Yes, but so does the young men. And our young men don't need to tell someone over and over that you love them. Prove it in your actions. And one way you prove it is by preserving her purity. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity.